In John's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning at verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So uh, we've got the topic of kingdom uh, this evening. We heard glimpses of the kingdom in that Bible reading. I'll mention that a little bit later on. Um, but the thing which happened when I started to think about kingdom, for some reason it reminded me of an event of my youth because I was quite uh, depressed because when I was about eight, um, my teacher gave us some homework to find out what is the real meaning of your name. So my name is Richard. So I went home and then we went off to the library and uh, we got a dictionary out. They didn't have the internet back in the 1970s. This was 1975. Trevor Francis was in his full pomp for Birmingham City. That was where I was. And I had to go to uh, a, a, a library, which, yes, I always find them difficult places. But we found this thing called a name dictionary. You don't have to go onto the internet or anything to find out what your name means. You just go onto a dictionary. And I opened it, I looked for R, and then R-I for Richard, if you don't know how to spell it. And uh, then it said these things. It said, Germanic name, meaning ruler. And that's when depression hit me, because I thought, why on earth would my mum and dad call me after a ruler? You know, I had an amazing shatterproof ruler in my pencil case, which I thought was great. But why would you call a child who you loved, uh, who you fed and you did all lovely things with, why would you name them after a ruler? It just didn't seem to make any sense to me. And seriously, for about five years, I pondered the question of why I was named after a ruler. You know, I did have learning difficulties. I probably still have. And... Um, so I was pondering this question. Then for history homework once, it started, it said, could you talk about the rulers? It was, remember this is very racist, just back in the 70s, rulers of England, it said. So, and then I suddenly thought, ah, my name means ruler. Could it possibly mean something to do with ruling and power and authority and success and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, I was much happier about my name. So now when I hear somebody say, hello, Richard, I think about dominion, power, ruling, leadership, and all that kind of stuff. And those are probably the words you think about when we start thinking about this concept of kingdom, because it's all about power and dominion and rule and leadership and authority as we get to get grips, key grips with this uh, concept of kingdom, these things might be 
in our head. And tonight we're going to be thinking about the kingdom, the whole expanse of kingdom. In the Bible you'll see phrases like the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to think about God's rule, authority and power. Um, because the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven simply signifies God's sovereign, dynamic and eschatological rule. In other words, how God has interacted with uh, his creation since the beginning of time, how he's interacting with it, if you like, right now, and how he's going to interact with it into the future. It's big stuff and it's really important. And more than ever, I think that disciples of Jesus need to get their head around what the kingdom really means. Because we actually live in a world, you can see it all around us, obsessed by power and ruling and authority and leadership. In Christian ministry, the most common conferences I get invited to go to are leadership conferences. It's as if leadership is everything. And if you crack that nut, you're on the way to success. If you live, lead in the right way, you are powerful. And ruling and leading and power are obsession of humanity. We love thinking about it and we love engaging at it, especially if we're in the corporate machine, we'll be going on about it all the time. We read books about it, we, which read, we watch sort of box set after box set uh, on uh, TV, like Game of Thrones, where we see power and authority uh, being lived out. In fantasy, we play computer games where we have all the power to manipulate the screen so we can be the one holding the power. The news agenda is ruled by power and how leaders are using their power and sadly we watch the news and see how new American presidents can use their executive ruling powers to unsettle the world and demonise and belittle communities. We live in very troubling times where we see ruling and power being demonstrated in most divisive ways and yet at the heart of Christianity is this idea of kingdom and God's rule and God's authority and God's power. So perhaps this evening is the perfect time for us to think about kingdom as we reflect on what's going on in our world, where it's going. Tonight gives us the opportunity just to stop and see God's priorities when it comes to power and authority. Tonight gives us space to reflect on the way God chooses to engage with power and ruling and authority. And hopefully tonight will give us a framework as we think about all the things which are bombarding us at the moment. And perhaps tonight we can be reshaped so we can engage with the world as it is and, uh, the, and the way that Jesus is calling us to be in it. So where does this idea of kingdom of God come from? You see, if you read the Bible, if you go through the whole of the Old Testament, it's a term which isn't in the Old Testament at all. It was an idea introduced by the Gospels. You start to see it when both John the Baptist announces that the kingdom of God is near and then when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God right at the start of his ministry. God's rule is on its way, it seemed, 2,000 years ago. However, having said all of this, the idea did start to emerge in the Old Testament we could start to see hints of the kingdom of God and its idea appearing. Yahweh, which is the name for God, the Hebrew uh, name for God, is presented as king in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and in 1 Samuel 12, and in Psalm 24. 
In Psalm 24 it says, Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And this idea is also found in places like Isaiah and also Zephaniah. He is also given a throne, we see, in Psalms. In Isaiah 6 verse 1, when Isaiah famously wrote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne, high and lofty. And the idea is presented by Ezekiel. There's an idea uh, from the Old Testament about God that his reign is going to be for eternity and it's going to be continuous. For example, in Psalm 146, verse 10, it says, Yahweh will reign forever. Uh, your God, O Zion, for all generations. But the idea of kingdom is found beyond these passages. There's a story going through the whole of the Old Testament that our God is powerful in the way that Moses dealt uh, uh, with uh, Pharaoh and Yahweh demanded to Pharaoh, uh, let my people go when escaping Egypt. It's in the covenant and the Ten Commandments there's a feeling that God is moving closer to his people and wanting them to follow him and live in his ways. It's uh, in the way the Israelites were given a land and God helped them to defeat an enemy. In the way that Israel uh, got their, uh, when, when Israel got their land, God gave them judges who were like his representatives on earth. It's in the way that when David became king of Israel, that the king came to be understood as Yahweh's representative and under his authority. The monarchy was looked upon as a concrete manifestation of Yahweh's rule. And the idea of kingdom was growing and growing and starting to take over the whole creative imagination of a nation. And it's best seen in the prophets who start to get a much louder voice and start to speak into the kings and nations' lives. And you see it in prophets like Nathan, Elijah and Elisha who start to speak as God would speak uh, to the kings and to the nation. And there's an idea starting to form of a future Messiah, which means a chosen one or king who would one day rule uh, over King David's kingdom in righteousness and prosperity. A big problem happened in the midst of all this because Israel was conquered and God's rule and prosperity seemed a million miles away as the people suffered greatly in the midst of political chaos and injustice. Things had to be radically reinterpreted. And the prophet Daniel started to do this as he imagined a new way, a new kingdom. He imagined one like the Son of Man. And Daniel's kingdom of God ideas go beyond the ideas of earthly and political but also start to point towards heaven. So whilst the kingdom of God is not directly mentioned in the Old Testament, there is a big idea forming. There's an idea of God's rule and reign. There's an idea of God's sovereignty. There's an idea of God relating very strongly with his people. There's an idea of Messiah who's going to be the one who will change everything and bring in God's rule. And there's an idea forming of an eternal kingdom. And just before Jesus came on the scene, this idea of the kingdom of God was really powerful and it was very attractive to the nation of Israel who were in deep trouble. You see, they'd been taken over by a Roman government who hated their religion and, they were caught, and this government was causing the people <coughs> so much grief. They had a mock king in place. We've heard of him. He's King Herod. He's the guy, the old man, as an old man, who tried to murder Jesus when he went around butchering all the boys of Bethlehem. However, when Herod was long, younger, lots of revolutionary moments were doing their best 
to overthrow him uh, because they definitely didn't see uh, Herod as a representative of God. And these people were trying to do their best to bring in what they called the kingdom of God because they felt it was earthly rule and earthly power. They felt it uh, was political and uh, they felt the kingdom of God was just settled on a geographical location of Israel. And they were trying to create a holy and special nation who would simply honour God and give God space to rule. So it's a political thing, it's a spiritual thing which is starting uh, to emerge. And into this intoxicating environment enters Jesus. He comes to a people who are oppressed, who are suffering great burdens, to a people who are ruled ruthlessly and suffer from overzealous uh, religious leadership, to a nation of charismatic but legalistic Pharisees who are chasing after God's heart but making following him so difficult and burdensome, and Sadducees who again try and do the right things legally but have become very religious in their outworking and understanding of what God wants. And there's those political revolutionaries around, the zealots, who are doing everything they could to disrupt life, disrupt life and frustrate the ruling authorities so they could bring God's rule in. Now, all of what I said is very simplified, but it gives you an idea that Jesus was born into a world which was full of a hotbed of ideas and religions trying to work it out. It was a political minefield. It was wanting change. It was looking for change. It was desperate for change. But somehow that change seemed impossible. But one thing's for certain. The politics was corrupt. The religion was bordering on fundamentalism. And life was hard and oppressive. The idea of God's rule seemed very attractive. As what was there right now must have been seemed like the exact opposite. And so Jesus starts his ministry and the kingdom of God was what he spoke about. If you want to know what Jesus spoke about, he spoke about the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven. And the reason for this is Matthew didn't want to offend his Jewish readership too much. So he used the word God with economy. As for Jewish readers, the name of God was so precious, you barely said it. To say it is to belittle his name somehow, to belittle God. So the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, was Jesus' big idea. And his idea was bigger than those political groups or those religious groups in Israel at the time. When Jesus spoke about kingdom, you get the idea it's all about God's authority. It's bigger than politics. It's bigger than religion. You get the feeling it was much bigger than a geography of a place. This was beyond countries and nations. Something much more was happening and it was significant and it was pinpointed on Israel at the time. So if you read Gospels, especially the Gospels of Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke, uh, you'll see that Jesus spent so much of his time speaking about the kingdom. It was the topic of his preaching. It was the practice of his life. Kingdom was in his thinking, in his practice and in his living. It was as if the whole, his whole being was somehow expressing and living out God's kingdom. The simple idea was, wherever Jesus was, the kingdom of God was present. It was as if he ushered in the kingdom. There'd been glimpses of it before, uh, but now, with Jesus, the kingdom is here. 
and he used so much of his time and energy to support, speak about it. Just Google the gospel, not Google, but get, get your smartphone Bible out and search kingdom on your, on, in the gospels and you'll just see it's kingdom this, kingdom that, kingdom this, kingdom that. It's there all the time. And this is so important to us tonight because the way Jesus spoke of the kingdom was challenging. It was an invitation for his followers to enter into a kingdom lifestyle. So if we're followers, it's an invitation to us too. It was a lifestyle of what has become known as upside down values. It required a complete overhaul of worldviews and understanding God's kingdom is beyond political revolution and religious revival. It was something completely different. But in this kingdom lay a new order of salvation. And his teaching and his life was about explaining and showing how to enter into this order of salvation. How the kingdom of God could become part of our awareness and life and living day in, day out. But when Jesus spoke of the kingdom, it was rarely comfortable. Uh, there's loads of stuff in the Old Testament to help us, in, sorry, in the New Testament to help us understand. I just want to give us a flavour tonight, and I'll never do it justice, but hopefully this is the start of some thinking for us all. Because uh, as we see in Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of God is costly and it is valuable. Verse 44 of chapter 13 says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. And in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Elsewhere, it's described as a pearl. It's extraordinarily precious. It's about the most precious thing you can think about and go for. You see that the kingdom of God is urgent. In Luke chapter 9, uh, 59 to 62, it says, To another he said, Follow me. But the person said, Lord, let me go first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, No one puts his hand to the plough and looks back his fit for the kingdom of God. It's stuff you enter into now and you get committed to now. You have to be childlike to enter it. Mark 10, truly I tell you, whoever does not enter the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. It's not that it's childish, it's just that with the simplicity of, like the simplicity of a child, you enter into it. You have to be born again of God's spirit to enter into it. That's found in John chapter 3. Truly, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Obedience is important to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 7, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. There's something about following and copying God. The way there is narrow. Luke chapter 13, strive to enter by the narrow door, for I tell you, um, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. There's nothing big or grand about the kingdom of God. It often looks small, unimportant and unattractive. The wicked aren't part of the kingdom of God. Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, 6 writes in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor adulterers, nor uh, sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you've got to be ready for it. Matthew 22 says, Watch therefore, do you not know on what day your Lord is coming? But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Entry into it is not based on outward appearance, uh, nor even given to those who claim to know the Lord. Jesus knows who is fake. Matthew 7 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Those, these are serious verses. But he or she who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? These are people who thought they were going for it. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, says Jesus to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evil doers. Now that feels a bit concerning. But remember, grace runs right through the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is for those who qualify for it. So in Colossians chapter 1, it says uh, in verse uh, 12, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God qualifies us for it. The kingdom of God is for the poor, Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to sinners, Mark 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick, I have come to call, not the righteous, but sinners, says Jesus. The kingdom of God is for the persecuted, Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is for everyone, Matthew 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and will eat with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is a tiny speck of a mustard seed that grows into a completely annoying and in the way tree. It's completely uh, small and insignificant looking yeast which does the most amazing things. The kingdom of God doesn't transform to the standards of this world. As Jesus said uh, in the passage we got tonight, today, as Pilate was arguing uh, with him about whether or not he was the king of the Jews, Jesus simply said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is something completely different. And the rulers and the religious leaders of the time just completely didn't get that. It's in the world, but it's out of it too. If we are part of the kingdom, we will bear its fruit. In other words, it will look like we belong to Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 12 urges Jesus' followers to live a life worthy of God, who calls us into his kingdom. Followers who lead a life worthy of God bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those are marks of kingdom people. 
The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of forgiveness. That's found in the middle of Matthew 6. And you see it in the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May it come. We want it here right now. And further on he goes, and let us forgive, uh, uh, forgive us our sins as we uh, forgive others. So it's about forgiveness. It's about recognising it's here and it has upside down status the kingdom of God At the, uh, um, and um, it's in, it, it says in the gospels at time, that time Jesus came to Jesus saying who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and calling to him a child um, he put um, him in the midst of them and said truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles himself like a child he or she is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I've only scratched the surface there. You could spend a long time just looking at this. There's loads and loads about the kingdom of God in the Bible. It is the major topic for Jesus. And he spoke about it in a way which was challenging, <laughs> inviting, encouraging and impossible. And Jesus is the one who brings in this new way of thinking, his way of ruling, his understanding of power, his authority. Everything about how he imagines leadership is different. It is humble, it's serving, it's empowerment. And right then, it's an invisible kingdom he is concerned with. But running right through Jesus' thinking and the Bible's thinking... There is this great tension. You see, Jesus came and revealed the kingdom. He gave us a glimpse of it everywhere he went. There were tasters of it as he parted with people, as he healed people, as he forgave people, as he listened to people, as he gave people respect and challenged the two religious types and the zealots. It was all focused towards God. It was all about humbleness, respect, honesty and kindness. It was a taste of heaven and imbued with grace and joy. Sometimes the kingdom of God message could be completely tough and terrible. Other times it could be welcoming and simply great. For the religious leaders of the time and the political leaders, uh, this kind of talk was too challenging. And eventually they distorted the thinking of the people and they manipulated a way uh, for Jesus uh, to be brutally tortured, which happened uh, just after our reading we had to today that uh, Pilate just washed his hands of him and then Jesus uh, was put to death on the cross. But the invisible kingdom Jesus spoke about is an eternal kingdom and its king, Jesus, is an eternal king and the grace of God is more powerful than the grief of humans and by some miracle of eternity Jesus defeated death, defeated evil, overcame human meanness and intolerance and narrow thinking Hallelujah. And the resurrection happened, and then the ascension, and we're at a point in history right now, which is in the, the place just after the ascension. We're still 2,000 years on. We've had the Holy Spirit, but we're still waiting. We live in attention. The kingdom of God is here, but also it's not here yet. We get those glimpses of it. We see it, something in our emotions and in our thinking. We recognise uh, the kingdom of God from time to time. But we know there's much more to it. We might gain a glimpse as we worship. We gained a glimpse tonight as we're encouraged to reach out to God. That is kingdom thinking and kingdom worship. We might sense Jesus nearby when we reach out and share 
our lives. People often say to me at Soul Food when they're just chatting quietly on the tables, that is when they worship and see the kingdom. It's when we're vulnerable, the kingdom is with us. It's sometimes there in the tears of pain. It's there when we're laughing and sharing our lives with others. It could be in that uplifting conversation. It might be when we're caught short that the kingdom is found. It's found in the unexpected places, the difficult places, the places where we feel fools. There's a scent of the kingdom, but somehow it's not complete. God's rule and reign is on the way, but it's not here yet. And sometimes we confuse the kingdom. Sometimes we confuse the work of the church with the work of the kingdom. The kingdom of God and the church are not the same thing. And in history, when the church has decided, actually, it is the kingdom of God, it has been disastrous and led to many abuses and uh, much incorrect and unjust thinking. However, the church is always looking for the kingdom, and the kingdom is always looking for the church. Sometimes we confuse the kingdom of God as being heaven, being that place we go to when we die. But that's not it, because in Jesus' thinking, and later on especially in Revelation, we see the kingdom coming in the form of new heavens and new earth. The kingdom is eternal, but it's much more than just heaven. Just putting it in heaven is belittling it too much. The kingdom of God is about God's rule. And we are stuck in this moment of history where we know all about his kingdom, where we've experienced many, many of his realities, but we're still waiting. So the kingdom cannot just be about heaven, because actually it's here right now, in this place. The kingdom is here, and yet we're still waiting for it to be fully revealed. Wherever Jesus is present, there is the kingdom of God. The upside-down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That kingdom is here today. It's so different from a way of ruling which many of our leaders, and we all know who I'm thinking about here, think is the right way. The way of power and dominance, of putting me or my company or my country first. That's all flipped on its head in the kingdom. And the thing all of us are invited to be part of is this kingdom. We're all invited to live for this kingdom and live our lives in the reality of this kingdom. Live our lives pointing outwards. Live our lives pointing others to God. Living our lives serving others like Jesus did so they can see God. Loving others, especially those who feel unlovable and introducing this kingdom uh, to them, which makes the poor the superstars and the rich the servants. Simply put, God saved us to work through us. God has saved us, and I hope you know what I mean when I say God has saved us. God has saved us in order to work through us, and that work of God starts now. That's what Jesus came to do. God wants his world to be ruled by humble and forgiven sinners who love him more than anything else. Because when we do that, we are people of the kingdom. We then have this wonderful privilege of introducing others to this amazing kingdom by living in the Jesus way. Today, the kingdom of God is present when we bring God's presence to his people. We do this when we allow the fruit of the Spirit 
to dominate our lives. You know that I've just spoken about it, the spirit of love, joy, peace. These are all the signs of his kingdom. To grow and to flower. Let those fruit, the fruit of the spirit, grow and flower in us so he can be visible in us and the kingdom can be apparent and tangible and we can just touch it for a moment or two. So the kingdom of God has launched, but it hasn't been fully consummated. It started as an idea in the Old Testament. Jesus explained it, and we're still waiting for it to be completely here. There's more to come. Your kingdom come. That is the dynamic of life we're living in. The church, that's you and me, through the help of the Holy Spirit, are now a kingdom-building project. We recognise that tension of the here and not yet kingdom, but we live our lives under God's rule. We live by grace. We live in God's love. We live gently and differently, showing others there is a new reality of life. There is another kingdom. It's a kingdom of love and hope. It's an invisible kingdom which we are waiting to become a visible kingdom. And this kingdom will become visible when Jesus comes to make all things new again. When Jesus comes to end this age and brings in the age of the kingdom, that kingdom can be our reality now. We can let God's rule, love and power take centre place in our life. But there is so much more to come. This is why it's brilliant being a Christian. We only just taste it now. And there's so much, so much more to come. It's not just what we limit to it in these, moment, in these times. But in the meantime, we, like Jesus, get on with presenting glimpses of heaven and hope. Let's do it tomorrow as we enter into our schools, into our offices, into our colleges, our universities, as we just walk around the streets, as we spend time with the people we love. Let's just offer glimpses of the kingdom. Let's be that physical reminder that the kingdom is here. Let's choose and decide that the kingdom dynamic is what we are living for now. But also, let's wait. We wait in joy because we've glimpsed it. It's called hope. We were praying for it earlier on. But we also wait urgently because Jesus, wanting Jesus to come and bring his justice and his rule. And when Jesus rules visibly, that will be the greatest thing ever. So my friends, let's reflect on this kingdom. It is so complicated, and yet it is so simple. All the benefits of the kingdom are here right now, and yet they're invisible to us. Let's live in the power of the kingdom, but know there's so much more than what we know now. And when we fully have the kingdom revealed to us, that will be the most amazing thing ever. Let's be kingdom people, and let's show people glimpses of this most amazing thing ever, but know there is so much more than what we have right now. And let's all go for it and imagine what that can mean for our lives. We've got a lot of working out to do. God bless you as we all do it.